All right. It is May 2nd, and we're in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, we're going to initially just look at verses 1 to 24. Uh, verses 25 to 27 require uh, a lot of time to unpack the mathematics involved and such, and we're not going to try to tackle this that today. So uh, we'll begin um, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 24, if we get there today. So this is another time when we in, need to enter Daniel's time machine, because we're going to have another time shift as we begin chapter 9. It was the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, the son of Ahasuerus, who became king of the Babylonians. So where are we now on the timeline? We're in 539 BC. Uh, Babylon has been defeated by the uh, Cyrus and the Medo-Persians. It is now 66 years, 66 years after Daniel was taken captive. So if we figure that uh, Daniel was about 16 or so when he was kidnapped and um, taken to Babylon, Daniel's probably about 82 years old or so now as uh, Daniel 9 opens up. So we are in 539 BC. Uh, the Babylon has just been defeated. Uh, King Belshazzar has been killed. And Darius the Mede is, uh, is now in charge. The forces ultimately under Cyrus's command, if you remember, they redirected the waters of the Euphrates River uh, away from the walls of Babylon there on the north part of the city. And so uh, they made this man-made canal that siphoned off all the waters so there was no more water uh, running under the walls. And so remember the soldiers uh, were able to get underneath the walls and pop up on the inside of the walls of Babylon and uh, and take over the city. It was uh, not not much of a battle, really, except King Belshazzar uh, lost his life there. He was uh, killed in the battle. So with the water gone, they have the surprise attack, and ba the Babylonian Empire basically is is gone. So Darius the Mede takes over as ruler of Babylon. And as you may recall, there are many theories about who Darius the Mede actually was. And we studied that back in chapter six. I'm not going to go deep into all those theories now, but uh, because chapter nine really isn't about Darius the Mede, it's about Daniel and the angel Gabriel and about the uh, end times that we studied in Revelation. So uh, let's go ahead and begin with uh, the first part of Daniel chapter 9. It was the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, the son of Ahasuerus, who became king of the Babylonians. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. So I turned to the Lord. And I pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. I also wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes. All right, so it's 539 BC. What is Daniel reading? The word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet. Let's go back and, and set the historical setting about Jeremiah here just very briefly. 
Uh, Jeremiah prophesied between about 627 BC to 586, the fall of, uh, of uh, Jerusalem, and maybe even to 582 BC. He was prophesying in Jerusalem when Daniel was taken captive back there around 606 BC. So Jeremiah began his public prophesying his ministry during the reign of the last good king of Judah. I remember the boy king, King Josiah, around 627 BC. If you remember, King Josiah uh, ascended to the throne when he was about eight years old, and he ruled for 31 years from 640, uh, 640 BC until his death in 609 BC. 609 BC, if you remember, was three years before Daniel was, uh, was taken captive. So during his reign, the uh, Assyrian Empire, if you remember, out of Nineveh was crumbling, and the new Babylonian Empire was flexing its muscles coming out of Babylon. And during Josiah's kingship, uh, Judah had a short time of independence. Remember, Josiah uh, did a lot to uh, return the Jewish people and turn them back to the Lord and make uh, take the uh, idols out of the temple and refocus uh, the children of Israel upon their God, at least those in Judah. So Judah uh, experienced a time of independence, and as the yoke of uh, Assyria weakened, and before Babylon would overthrow Judah and take Jerusalem under King Nebuchadnezzar, there was this time of independence. Now, Egypt is watching what's happening politically. Egypt knew that if Babylon was rising in power, that they perhaps could make a strategic decision to align with Syria or at least to, if not take over Syria, at least use them as a buffer in hopes of having a, uh, at least a tenuous relationship with Assyria to, uh, to hold off the Babylonians. So Egypt has this idea of traveling uh, from south to northeast to meet the Assyrians in Haran. And so uh, let, let me think put a map up here for you to look at real quick. Here we go. All right. Can everybody see that? Except John. <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> yes. I see it. Hello, everybody. All right. Hey, welcome aboard, Sandra. I know. I had a phone I call. Think... It kept me late. I can't believe well, that's it. That's all right. All right. So if you can see my cursor here down in the lower left-hand corner, uh, this is Egypt here. You see the Red Sea. All right, so this is Egypt. The shaded area with the gray lines, that is the Assyrian Empire, uh, which uh, basically was weakened and, and fell uh, ultimately to the Babylonians. So King Nico of Egypt, he's down here in the lower left-hand corner. You see the, the purple dotted arrow here. Uh -huh. He decides to head to Haran. Uh, Haran is up here where that purple box is, and, and so is Carchemish. Uh, these are two cities where uh, there are still Assyrian strongholds. 
To the right in the green box is Nineveh. And uh, you remember all the things that happened in Nineveh with uh, uh, Job and such. Uh, um, Jonah, I'm sorry, with Jonah. It was a long night. And then uh, in this red circle down here, Babylon is, uh, is coming forth. So you had uh, all of these political strongholds here. So back down here, King Nico of Egypt decides to head north through Judah, right where Jerusalem is located, to meet the Assyrians up in Haran and Carchemish. King Josiah decides to not let King Nico pass through Judah and go to Haran and Carchemish. And really, this was un, an unlikely thing for King Josiah. Really, he, his, he, he became a little bit arrogant. He quit listening to God. He quit listening to his advisors. So what uh, King Josiah does and it's not listed. I could not find a map that had the information I wanted. So unfortunately, we'll have to use my cur cursor here. In this area, uh, just north of Jerusalem and the Dead Sea is around this area. Uh, Dead Sea. The uh, Sea of Galilee is in this area here, the Sea of Galilee. So southwest of the Sea of Galilee, north of Jerusalem, is the place that we visited in Revelation called the Plain of Megiddo, all right, or the Plain of Jezreel, Megiddo. And that's where the Battle of Armageddon, the battles of Armageddon are going to be fought in the future. Well, now, Megiddo is... Where is it on the kinda, map? It's kind of where my cursor is circling right here, if you can that's see That's Armageddon. It. Okay. Okay, that's generally where it is. Okay. So... What happens is that King Josiah sends his armies out and he meets King Nico and the Egyptian army in the Valley of Megiddo, which is where Armageddon will, will eventually be fought. And King Nico says to King Josiah, look, I have no beef with you uh, at all. I just want to go meet with the Assyrians. Well, King Josiah is thinking, you know, we had a bad experience with the Egyptians way back there under a guy named Pharaoh. I don't know that I want the Egyptians to have any power again. I don't know that I want them aligning with the Assyrians. So let's see if we can defeat, let's see if we can turn Egypt back here. And I'd rather go back to Assyrian domination than to face the Egyptians again. Again, he's not listening to God. He's not listening to his advisors. So King uh, Nico, leading the Egyptians going northeast to Haran and Carchemish, they are stopped by King Josiah and uh, his Jewish armies uh, here in the, in the plains of Megiddo. Uh, King Nico cannot convince King Josiah that he... All he wants is to pass through. He's not looking at defeating uh, Judah at all. But King, uh, King Josiah refuses to listen to reason. And what happens is that King Nico says, okay, we're coming through. And they, they battle each other. And what happens is that uh, the Egyptian archers uh, 
shoot King Josiah up with a couple of arrows. And uh, depending on which interpretation, which version you look at, King Josiah either died on the battlefield there in Megiddo, or more likely uh, his, his army took him fatally wounded or, or desperately wounded back to Jerusalem, and he, uh, he died in Jerusalem. So uh, unfortunately, uh, King Josiah didn't live a whole long time. It's because that he failed to, uh, to follow uh, what, what God was asking him to do. Okay, you got the map there. Kind of, I just wanted to give you at least a visual of, of what's happening here. And, and what did God want him to do? And what was he determined to do? Uh, God, God was telling uh, Josiah to let him go. Okay. So they're, they're, they're going to, they're, they're, see, ultimately the Egyptians and the Assyrians were, they were, they were going to try to align with each other. Uh, however, they, they felt Babylon was just too strong. All right. And, and so they were unable to hold off the Babylonian forces uh, coming out of Babylon. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. And that, and, and again, originally that Assyrian influence coming out of, uh, out of Nineveh, uh, where Jonah did not want to go. All right. I'm going to drop the map. We'll get back to where we go. Okay. So I bring up this history because Jeremiah began his prophetic ministry uh, while a lot of this was, was happening, 627 BC, about 13 years into King uh, Josiah's reign. So at the time that Jeremiah began, began prophesying, King Josiah would have been early 20s, what, 21 maybe? So Jeremiah began to warn, based upon what God was, was giving him to say, Jeremiah began to warn the children of Israel about what was going to happen in terms of God's judgment upon them for walking away from him, for worshiping foreign gods. And so he was telling them that there was going to be this Babylonian influence, this Babylonian empire, empire, and they were going to be taken captive. And basically, uh, Jeremiah's Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, his Jewish people first ignored him, and then they got really ticked at him, and uh, to the point that Jeremiah's only family uh, turned against him as well. And the Jewish people, his own people, uh, whipped him. They put him in stocks overnight. And under ultimately under King Zedekiah, he was next to the last king of, of Judah. Jeremiah was stuck into a cistern of mud. They were hoping he would just sink in there and die. He didn't. And because he didn't, they then imprisoned him in Jerusalem. So when uh, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, uh, there, there are three attacks in, uh, in, and I'll review those dates in a minute, there are three volleys, so to speak, of uh, the Babylonian attacks on Jerusalem and, uh, and Judah. And so as, uh, as King Nebuchadnezzar makes attack one, two, and three, Jeremiah is sitting in jail. <laughs> and he's, he's uh, encouraging his, his people to return to God to repent and instead of that, they, they just get madder and madder at Jeremiah, and they keep him in prison. So he starts to write letters from prison, 
to to the Jewish people. Uh, ultimately, Jeremiah um, was released by the Babylonians when they took over and sacked Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar actually thought. Jeremiah wasn't such a bad guy. <laughs> and uh, so he had his captains release Jeremiah. And uh, so Jeremiah was, was free for a bit. And then his own Jewish people kidnapped him and took him to, uh, to Egypt uh, for a while. And, and we believe he either died of natural causes or he might have even been assassinated by his own people in Egypt. A really uh, tragic, uh, tragic story. All right, why did so, they do that? Um, why did his own people after that all yeah, happened? His, why were his, they still his, holding a vendetta against him? Right. His own people hated him because he brought the truth of God's word to them. They didn't want to know that they were going to be taken by uh, captive to, to Babylon for 70 years. And, and they didn't necessarily want to repent. They were chasing other gods at this point. Uh, they were walking away from the Lord. And so Jeremiah was saying, look, God is going to judge you for this. And because they didn't want to hear that, talk about cancel culture, uh, they, uh, they persecuted him, threw him in prison. And then when he was eventually released, they took him captive into Egypt. And uh, uh, tradition has it that he was uh, put to death by his own people there. They hated him for speaking the truth of what uh, God said was going to happen to, uh, to Judah. And of course it did. So that was it. They hated him for speaking truth. Basically, Sandra is, is, is okay. the, the they never did thing. change. Did they human beings are still the same? Huh? Oh, got it. Yeah. Uh, until 70 years later. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Uh, now, if remember, I want to go back to, the sacking of Jerusalem. Remember, it did not happen all at one time. Uh, the, the first volley was in 605 BC. Remember, that's when Daniel and his companions, who were uh, of royal blood, uh, they were kidnapped by Nebuchadnezzar's armies, and, and uh, they were taken to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, as you recall, uh, put Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through his own... Um, academy for young leaders and he tried to erase their jewishness and make them into babylonian leaders well they became babylonian leaders but he was any, unable to erase their jewishness uh, which was good because as you remember king nebuchadnezzar eventually eventually re, uh, uh, relented and um, became a follower of god so 605 bc was the first volley where daniel was taken captive uh, 597 BC was the attack, uh, second attack. This is when Nebuchadnezzar attacks the city. He, he captures King Jehoiakim and he takes the king captive to Babylon. And then the final sack, the final destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of a temple occurs in 586 BC. Remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar's third attack. He burns the temple. He destroys the city, uh, tears down the walls, and he carries the temple's tre uh, treasures back to Babylon. And we know that history because of what's recorded in uh, 2 Kings 24 and, and 2 Chronicles 36. 
All right. Now, it's about 47 years after the fall of Jerusalem. Daniel's in his early 80s, and he's reading these letters, uh, these books sent from uh, uh, Jeremiah to the, to the people of Judah in captivity. And he's gravely concerned about what he sees in Jeremiah's writings because he knows Jeremiah is accurately uh, reporting what God said is going to happen. And I'm pretty sure that Daniel read this passage from Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then, after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord. I will make the country of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. Of course, all of that happens. And then a passage I'm sure you're all familiar with, Jeremiah 29, 10 to 11. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure Daniel read this. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you a home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. There are plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And that was in the context, and, and that's, you know, we, we sometimes, and it's not a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. That's but your favorite, often, Sandra. Huh? That's Sandra's favorite verse. Yeah. Yes. You know, Sarah Young wrote a whole book of, um, you know, of, of daily things based on that scripture, too. Oh, powerful. Yeah, yeah that's a, Jesus is um, yeah, one of the Jesus books she wrote, and that's the theme of it is that particular verse. I didn't know that before after I bought after I had it in my cabinet for a while. Who wrote yeah. the book? Uh, Sarah Young. She has those little daily, uh, you know, uh, prayer timers. Devotions. You know, yeah. Devotions. Yeah. Excuse me. In context, it makes that passage, at least to me, it makes it pop even more because of the drastic nature of its context. Jude, God is punishing his own people for their disobedience. And he's allowing Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon to come and sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And he's doing this because it's his judgment upon his people. And yet, see, God always holds out repentance. God never gives us judgment without the opportunity for repentance. And so that's where this comes from. Even with this punishment, this judgment that they're going through, God says, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. So what's happening is God is taking his people to the woodshed for 70 years. And ultimately, uh, as we see in Revelation, Israel, uh, he will honor and he will, he will, he will be uh, true to his promises. All right, let's go back. With all that historical background, I hope that helps a little bit. Let's join Daniel as he processes 
Daniel chapter 9 here. It was the first year king uh, of the reign of Darius the Mede, the son of Ahasuerus, who became the king of Babylonians. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. Now, Daniel, having witnessed the overthrow of Babylon and the empire that he was employed to help govern, searched the scriptures to learn what lay ahead for his Jewish people. And Daniel understood that at the end of the Babylonian exile, the Jews, uh, the, the Babylonian exile was nearing an end. Remember, he's 81, maybe 82 at, at this point. So he comes very, having read Jeremiah's words, he comes humbly before God, and he's going to plead to God on behalf of Israel. He's going to fast. He's going to pray. He's dressed in sackcloth and ashes, which, as you recall, was a traditional sign of grief and mourning and repentance. This is not just an offhand prayer. Daniel is... is struck down to his gut with the dire straits that his people are in. And, and he's, he's just passionate about pleading before God that God will show mercy. All right, so here we go. Verses 3 through 14 that we're going to read involve Daniel's plea of confession on behalf of the nation of Israel. Verse 3, so I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. I also wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, you are a great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets, who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes and ancestors and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are in the right, but as you see, our faces are covered with shame. This is true of all of us, including the people of Judah and Jerusalem and all Israel, scattered near and far, wherever you have driven us because of our disloyalty to you. Let me stop there for a second and remember, the northern kingdom was, uh, dis was defeated and dispersed way before Judah fell. And remember, no one from the northern kingdom of Israel ever returned to Jerusalem. It was only the captives and their children's and their children's children's. It was only the captives of Judah who were taken to Babylon that ever returned to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild the walls and the temples. All right, coming back on verse, uh, let me get it with my good contact. Verse 8, O Lord, we and our kings, princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. But the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God, for we have not followed the instructions he gave us through his servants, the prophets. Notice how he's speaking in the third person here. 
That's very interesting. And I don't know why. All Israel has disobeyed your instruction and turned away, refusing to listen to your voice. So now the solemn curses and judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured down on us because of our sin. You have kept your word and done to us and our rulers exactly as you warned. Never has there been such a disaster as happened in Jerusalem. Every curse written against us in the law of Moses has come true. Yet we have refused to seek mercy from the Lord our God by turning from our sins and recognizing his truth. Therefore, the Lord has brought upon us the disaster he prepared. The Lord our God was right to do all of these things, for we did not obey him. So you see this deep sense of confession uh, Daniel making on the part of his Jewish brothers and sisters. Daniel is saying to God, yep, you said this would happen, and you are right in punishing us because we've been rebellious. We have not followed the law that you gave us. We have turned away from you. We deserve everything we're getting. But now, in verses 15 to 19, he's going to shift from this, this deep confession on behalf of Israel to a petition. <laughs> in other words, he's going to make the ask to the Lord. Here's what he's going to ask. Again, this section 15 to 19 is the petition or the ask. Pastor Mike. Oh, Lord. Yes. Okay. I am really um, confused. Well, not real confused. <laughs> but uh, how can he, I mean, back where he says, um, it's almost like he's confessing the sins of the nation, which doesn't, uh, I mean, you can say the nations are sinning, but you can't repent for the other people. So I'm, I'm confused in that. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's because we're Western and don't have an Eastern mind. There is a, uh, especially as you look at the Old Testament, Israel as a nation is chosen by God to be a light to the world. It's, this is his chosen people. And the nation of Israel is, is, is not made up of individual believers in God. It is a, a corporate mindset because they are all from the 12 tribes okay. of Israel. Oh, See, there's I a, see. yeah, get it? There's that bloodline. Yeah, right. There's that bloodline that's running through all of this. And so, you know, we can say, okay, I'm an American and, you know, we've done some dumb stuff in the past and, you know, but I wasn't involved in that, but I, you know, maybe I can say to God, yeah, we as a nation messed up in that, but I personally don't, didn't have a stake in that. Not so for the people of Israel. Uh, their okay. sin is deep in ingrained into each individual because of the bloodline. There's okay. no bloodline, you know, for us yeah. really as a nation. 
for Israel there is. And so that what that's why you see, and, and in the future, you'll see, uh, you know, like Ezra. Ezra is going to go prostrate before God and yeah. in sackcloth and ashes and, and plead with him. So you see this a lot with the prophets of the Old Testament. They were um, chosen by God to speak on behalf of, of the people. And that's what Daniel is doing here. Does that, okay, so does that Moses, help a little bit? That, that Moses would have said that, right? He was chosen to get them out of bondage. Oh, Mo Moses, yes. Yeah, most definitely. So yeah. I wouldn't, couldn't use this as an example for me to ask God to forgive the nation of America. Right. I mean, yeah. Be, yeah. It, it, it's a different different setting yeah okay different circumstances we you know we call it a nation technically a nation shares a commonality often of a uh, a race or a bloodline oh. Oh. you know in, yeah, okay. we talk about the nation of israel we're, we're not talking about the political state necessarily we're right, talking right. about that bloodline that makes them oh. Israelites. Okay. We don't have so, that here. Okay. <laughs> you know, so we, back again, this is not an example I can use to pray for America. I mean, I can. It, it, you you but, can, but it, yeah, it doesn't carry the same yeah, dynamics. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what that's probably, that's sort of probably what I was confused with. Yeah, uh, I mean, not necessarily confused, but I wanted clarity for. No, that's good. Good, good question. Good, yeah, good yeah. thing to clarify. Yeah, because I know, uh, and not that I want. If somebody tells me, oh, you know, I haven't read uh, Anne Lott's book on this, but I get the feeling she's written it so that we could pray this for our country. I, I don't know that. I'm just telling you how I've got sort of a feeling yeah. as I've read some of it, and. Um, <laughs> That's fine, but these kind of words don't work. <laughs> I mean, I can't ask God to forgive all the people and expect him to forgive them and say, go hard ahead. So well, uh, this helps and the, very much. The other problem is we're in the church age. Yes. Uh, and, and so the dynamics for Israel are different than the dynamics for the church. God has a program for Israel that parallels, but is separate from the program for the church. Okay. Okay. So yeah. God has a set of covenants with Israel oh. and he has a set of covenants, so to speak with the body of Christ. And, um, but, but they're, separate so to speak yes okay. we're all going to be in heaven together uh, or on the new heavens and the new earth um but israel is very special and and god's promises to israel you go back to the adamic uh covenant and and the mosaic covenant and uh the, the abrahamic covenant the noah covenant uh, all of these covenants god god will honor and Israel will be, he will be true to Israel to the end. We don't have those. 
Yeah. United States of America doesn't have a covenant with God. <laughs> no, Israel no. does. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It didn't, okay. didn't, didn't, uh, but uh, I think in our history though, we did make a covenant with God. Didn't our original, the, 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 um, uh, the pilgrims, didn't, wasn't that a covenant with God? Well, when we talk about a covenant with God, what we're talking about are scriptural covenants. Because the pilgrims may have made a promise to God does not mean God treats that the same way as the covenant he made with Israel. Remember, yeah. these are covenants God made to Israel, not covenants made from Israel to God, which is a difference. It's, it's I mean, the it's difference. A difference. Even if I make a promise yeah. to you, than if you make a promise to me. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. yeah. but now, now let me okay. go back and say, I'm not advocating, not praying yeah, for yeah, our yeah. nation. I, mean, I know. You understand I that. that. You got that. Okay. I know that. Uh, I know that. It's just yeah. that okay. these, you know, we don't have, America does not have a covenant with God. Yeah. God didn't make a covenant with us. Now we have made, we may have made agreements on our side to God, but they're not covenants that came from God to us. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Right. It went the yeah. opposite way. When I think way. of praying for America, I think of when Abraham asked God um, to save Lot, mm. he did not say, forgive Lot and you know, make everything right. He kept, he, he was just interceding for Lot <laughs> to be, not to be taken out. Yeah. <clears throat> that, yeah. That's how I sort of see praying, even for anybody, if they aren't. Yeah, I, I mean, can't ask, I mean, I can't even ask God to forgive you of your sin, because if you don't repent. Correct. <laughs> and it also, I mean, I, I know this, I know this, uh, and it's not necessarily that, I just probably want a little extra clarity there, but, uh, and I'm not gonna tell people they have to repent their self. I mean, I'm not going out there and say, oh, you can't be doing that. Uh, but uh, I just, just needed a little more clarity there. Yeah. And I know, because some of those words, and you said something about uh, why he was using the third person. And uh, I thought, yeah, that sounds just sort of weird to me. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll let you go on with the rest of you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Um, boy, I just had a thought that went away. Okay. Well, I don't know where it went. <laughs> And I'm unable to retrieve it. So I guess we'll have to go on here. I, I guess what I was going to say is I'm, 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 I'm doing that and it's not helping. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, okay. I know, I know what it was, you know, you go back to, uh, uh, was a second Chronicle seven, you know, if my people who call yeah. upon my men. Will, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. The, the the problem with taking that 
extracting that particular passage out of context is there's no covenant involved there with God. Yeah. yeah. However, the principle is good. Yeah. The principle of asking God for forgiveness, you know, for non, for Gentile, the Gentile world is not a bad thing. Yeah. You know, to, um, well, let me just say, let, let's say I, I'm just picking a, a big doofus thing that we did, you know, during World War II and interning all the Japanese in internment yeah. camps. Let's say we're back in World War II. Personal, I think I think that was a I, I understand the tactic, but if you think about the fact that these were Americans <laughs> and many were fighting for us, uh to do these internment camps was really a horrible thing. And so let's say we're, we're in the time of World War II to get on our knees and say to God, we ask your forgiveness for doing this. And, and uh, there were reparations made to a lot of, of the Japanese in America. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was also that act of, 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 uh, uh, confession and 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 such so in that kind of case you know the principle is at work but oftentimes we lift stuff out of the old testament out of context and we think it has the same if then results that it does for the jewish yeah. people it does yeah. not yeah so we have to separate out the principle from the covenant relationship yeah yeah that's I did get it back. So yeah, I yeah, guess it didn't did. go too far away. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, where did I leave Thank off? Thank you. Okay. So Daniel. <laughs> where did you? <laughs> well, let's go back to verse said, 15. Yeah. It's around verse 15 somewhere. Yeah. All right. Okay. So 15 to 19, Daniel is going to make a petition to God. He's going to ask God for something. Oh, Lord, our God. You brought lasting honor to your name by rescuing your people from Egypt in a great display of power. But we have sinned and are full of wickedness. In view of all your faithful mercies, Lord, please turn your furious anger away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. All the neighboring nations mock Jerusalem and your people because of our sins and the sins of our ancestors. Oh, our God, hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead for your own sake, Lord, smile again on your desolate sanctuary. Talking about the temple there. Oh, my God, lean down and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, lies in ruins. We make this plea not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. For your own sake, do not delay, oh, my God, for your people and your city bear your name. That is a wonderful plea. You know, it really is. It's, it's, it's speaking truth. It's being humble. And yet it's being bold. Uh, I believe God loves it when we come before him 
humbly yet boldly. It seems like an oxymoron, but it's mm -hmm. not. In humility, we can come to him with uh, requests that, that align with his, his will. All right, now what happens? Verses 20 to 23. God responds to Daniel through the angel Gabriel. Here we go, verse 20. <clears throat> Daniel says, I went on praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. As I was praying, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I have come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment you began praying, a command was given. And now I am here to tell you what it was. For you are very precious to God. Listen carefully so that you can understand the meaning of your vision. So as Daniel is praying, a command is given. We assume that command is from God the Father. And God the Father dispatches Gabriel from the third heaven uh, in lightning speed to come to Daniel as he's entering his evening devotions. So now <clears throat> we get deep into the future of Israel and its relationship with the Gentiles. Remember the first half of basically the first half of Daniel, the book, books of Daniel, the chapters of Daniel, uh, two through seven, deal with the Gentiles' relationship to Israel, with Israel. The second half of Daniel, eight to 12, deals with Israel's relationship with the Gentile world. So the focus shifts in chapter 8 from the Gentiles to the nation of Israel. And that's why the first one through seven are written in Aramaic. Uh, that's the language of the Gentiles, the Babylonians. And the second half is written in Hebrew because Daniel now is writing specifically to his own people. They're the focus now of what's happening here. And we get deep into what the future of Israel is going to be during the times of the Gentiles. And remember, the times of the Gentiles are defined as the time of the sacking of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. to the second coming of Jesus Christ when he sets foot back on earth. That is the time of the Gentiles. And Daniel now is going to receive from Gabriel the the program, what the prophecy of what's going to happen to Israel uh, during that time. All right, so he says in verse 24, we may get this done, actually. We're getting there. Yeah, maybe not. We'll try. Verse 24, a period of 70, by the way, I'm reading from the new translation here because I like the way they break this down. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, 
and to anoint the most holy place. All right, let's stop here for a minute and let's talk about what 70 sets of seven means here. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people. If you're looking at the uh, NASB or the English Standard Version, it reads, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. King James Version reads, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. All right, so which is it? Is it 70 weeks? Is it 70 years or a period of 70 sets of seven? Well, it all points in the same direction in terms of interpretation. Here's the best way I can break it down. When we think of periods of time in our Western thought, we think in terms of decades, uh, deca. We, We think in terms of groups of 10 years, right? Decades. The Hebrews thought in terms of sevens, not tens. And sevens, uh, uh, the, the set of, sets of tens we call decades. The sets of sevens are called heptads, H-E-P-T-A-D-S, H-E-P-T-A-D, heptads. Simply, a heptad represents the number seven or a group of sevens. So when Gabriel talks about 70 sets of seven, if you think of it as an equation, it's 70 sets of seven. That's 70 times seven. And what does 70 times seven equal? 490 years. I'm not going to go into all the debates, but I agree with those who interpret the sets of seven to refer to years. Uh, Doing the math using days or weeks, it just doesn't map out. But if you think of all of this in terms of uh, divisions of time and represented by 490 years, the mile markers all add up uh, to uh, uh, a prophetic equation that works. And we'll get into that maybe next week uh, at the the end of Daniel 9 here. Now... To complicate it, the 490 years are not literally 490 years, but a prophetic representation of time. (laughs) To cut to the chase, and I'll do a spoiler alert here, the end of the 490 years equates to the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes back and he begins the millennial rule. Okay, so that let's get that mile marker in mind. The end of the 490 years is the end of the tribulation tribulation period. And if you'll allow that interpretation to stand just for the sake of argument and for the sake of not extending this study until two or three o'clock in the morning, uh, let's let's look at some mileposts in that timeline. To begin the discussion, we need to acknowledge that in keeping with the theme of chapters 8 through 12, again, Daniel is addressing the Jewish people and their future during the times of the Gentiles from 586 BC, the sacking of Jerusalem, until the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the focus here is not on the church. It is not on the body of Christ. The focus here 
is on the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And its future, from the time that Daniel is writing here in 539 B.C. until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the Jewish... The Jewish people are the focus. Let me make sure this is <clears throat> turned off here. It, it's not. <laughs> All right. The, the, the Jewish people are the focus here, and they are embedded in Gabriel's opening statement. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city. Notice what he's saying. Your people, your holy city. So this gets back, and to your observation before, Gabriel is saying, this is, Daniel, this is about your people and your holy city. So Gabriel and God here are using Daniel to <clears throat> stand in the place of the nation of Israel. All right. So the key is your people, your holy city. So in summation, between 539 B.C. and the second coming of Christ, uh, Gabriel is going to talk about what will happen to the Jewish people. And I'm going to kind of wrap it up there. We're at, at the hour. But during the span of those 490 prophetic years, God is going to accomplish six things. And we're going to talk about that in detail uh, in verse 24. So if you want to read, <clears throat> want to read ahead, you want to study it a little bit for next week, look at the six things that God is promising to do in verse 24. And that's where we'll uh, that's where we'll begin next week. And then we'll <clears throat> time permitting, and, and we probably will have time, uh, we'll look at the ending. Uh, verses of 25 to 27, which is when we really need to wrap our heads in duct tape so our brains don't explode as we start to work out the math of, uh, of the 490 years, the 480. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the math next week. Um, my synapses are not up to doing math this week. We'll, we'll save that for next week. All right. <laughs> Any... Um, any questions thus far regarding where we got verses 1 to, through 23? 1 to 23. Okay. All right. All right, so next week, let's pick up with verse 24. Uh, if you want to read ahead, that I encourage you to do that. If you have any commentaries on 25, 26, 27, time to dust them off, bring them out. Uh, because next week is, is going to be a brain burner, uh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's see. John, are you still there? I'm here. Would you mind closing, <laughs> would you mind closing <laughs> us in prayer today, John? <laughs> I'm right. Okay. Thank you. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for such a, such a wonderful study. Um, how complex it is, Father, uh, of the things that are going on with Daniel and all the business that's taken place um, and all the study and reading that we need to do uh, because trying to remember this uh, is more than difficult. 
um, as complex as it is, and as uh, Dr. Mike said, uh, a brain burner next week. Mine's already on fire now, so uh, I don't know what's going to happen next week. But, but Lord, we just we just absolutely give you praise and, and glorify you for the things that you say and you do and the outcome that you give us and the accuracy of what takes place and how it takes place, Father. Uh, how foolish, how foolish really uh, we are for not listening to everything that you say and everything that you do. Uh, and not just taking something for granted, but by studying those places, studying those those uh, your scriptures on this, Father, to realize how absolutely important it is for us to remember that we're in the same boat. We can't just float down the river uh, and join the day. Father, there are many, many things along the way that we need to pay attention to in our lives. Yeah, you know, yeah. sweetheart. Are you on the phone or just? Uh, no, I was listening to that church thing. Are you there? I Go ahead, John. Hello? Hello. Hello, John. You're good. Hello. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Okay, all right. But anyway, that's 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 what I'm looking at. Uh, what's what I think about how important it is for to pay attention daily, and in talking with you and asking you for your grace and uh, your word in our lives to govern us day by day, Father. It's one day at a time. So all the things that have taken place. In, in in the history in the seventy in the seventy weeks uh, in chapter nine, Father, extraordinary, and we just thank you for that. We thank you for that. We have the ability to have such a good teacher giving us uh, the information that, that is so important, and the background of it. The background is so important. Thank you. Thank you. In the name of your son, Jesus, Father, we thank you for this. Amen.